Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Today's Global IQ Minute is with Joshua Partlow, the author of an important and fascinating book about Afghanistan as seen through the eyes of the Karzai family. From 2009 to 2012, Joshua's bureau chief for the Washington Post in Kabul. A Kingdom of Their Own, The Family Karzai and the Afghan Disaster, which was first published in hardcover last year, is now out in paperback. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So we're going to focus on Afghanistan now, but since you've been in Mexico City for the last few years, I thought it would be nice for our next podcast this week. It'll be available later, and we'll focus on Mexico. Sounds great. So many books have been written about Afghanistan, and of course, as we know well, it's our longest war, mostly from the military, political, diplomatic perspectives. What drove you to focus on the Karzai family? There were a couple main reasons. One of them was that it is a war that's gone on for so long, now we're in our 16th year, and the news coverage can get numbing and can get confusing to follow. It's been going on, going on for so long. And so part of it was that this was a way to humanize the story, to focus on the individuals and the characters involved. And, and they're very colorful, fascinating characters. I mean, the President Hamid Karzai was constantly at war figuratively with the United States during the period I was there. His brothers were at the center of a lot of the main themes of the war, whether it was the warlords or the corruption problem that Afghanistan had. And they were also at the same time in the middle of this bloody family feud within the Karzai extended family over slights that happened decades earlier. So there was a lot of, I, th- I found the politics there was very visceral and very, very interesting way to, to focus on the war. Did you find that people within the family were willing and ready to talk with you? Some were, some weren't. I probably would have liked to have a little better access at the end of the day, but the main key relatives and family members did meet with me. One interesting aspect of, I guess, Afghan culture is that I almost had no access to the women in the Karzai family, and they didn't want to meet with any foreign journalists, and the men in the family didn't want to even introduce me to the women in the family. That was a little bit different for the Karzais that lived in the United States because they were a bit more westernized and more Americanized, and so I was able to interview the president's sister who lives in Maryland. But they were under the microscope in a big way during the period that I was writing about them, and they'd had a lot of struggles with the United States and were suspicious of the United States, so there was definitely some wariness on their part. You know, it's been such a long time since President Karzai came into power. We tend to forget how he came into this position and also that the United States was very much opposed to him having a second term. Why was there so much opposition? Yeah, like you mentioned, when he came in into power in 2001, at the end of 2001, a few months after the war started, he was essentially installed by the United States. He was seen as the least offensive Afghan leader at the time to the different constituencies in Afghanistan. He was non-threatening. He spoke English. He was a Pashtun from the majority uh, ethnic group. He was beloved by a lot of Afghans and by the United States, I think, for several years. By 2009, when he was running for his second election, the war had been deteriorating dramatically for several years. As the U.S. was adding more troops, the amount of taxpayer dollars that were being squandered in Afghanistan was increasing, and so the U.S. was more and more frustrated with the lack of progress, and I think particularly as President Obama was planning to send 30,000 additional troops in 2009 Mm -hmm. that a lot of the U.S. commanders felt were desperate for another alternative. 
but he ended up winning the election and then they were sort of stuck in this horrible relationship for the next term. With democracy, you don't always get what you want. <laughs> yeah. Your book focuses obviously on a lot of corruption and self-dealing. What is the most egregious example? Would it be the Kabul Bank? I think the Kabul Bank was the most egregious example in terms of the scope of it. The amount of money was staggering. It was about a billion dollars of fraud in that bank, which was set up with the help of some of the president's relatives. And it was the key glaring example, I think, when the president really looked the other way and, and a lot of his rhetoric about how good governments was so important when it came to prosecuting the people close to him and in his family and among his political cronies that he did nothing at all. Did anybody ever pay for it, go to jail? They, they, yeah, they had, some of the people had small prison terms, but the key owners and shareholders of the bank didn't, including the brother of the president and the brother of the vice president. I mean, I think there was a lot of, there were a lot of other examples of the corruption you hear about, schools being paid for and not being built. There were maybe examples that were more important to regular citizens, but the, you know, the, the big dramatic scandal was the Kabul Bank. Now, just a week ago, on uh, August 21st, the Trump administration announced its much-anticipated and equally debated policy on Afghanistan. Probably pretty short on specific details, but it did confirm that the United States is going to be there for at least the foreseeable future. Are you in favor of our continued presence? What do you think about what the president is, his strategy? Yeah, it's a tough question. Like you said, there's very little different than has been tried before, and it does seem like we're we're going down a path that we've walked before and we've lost a lot of soldiers trying to do what now President Trump is trying to do again. And the Taliban right now is much stronger than they were when President Obama sent, sent his additional troops. So I guess in general, no, because there hasn't been any new ideas discussed about what's going to be different this time than previous efforts. And what will be the total troop deployment, do you think? Yeah, it's, it's, it's relatively got, minor 10, in the 10, grand scheme. 10, 12,000, something yeah, like that? Yeah, 4,000 additional, probably about 12, 12 total. Now, one of the constants with Afghanistan is General McMaster. I was really interested. In fact, I'll say I was astonished when I read your <laughs> book because I had this idea that he was this this hero and somebody that had had a very successful career, but that wasn't the yeah. case, at least not in Afghanistan. Tell us about that. No, I think Afghanistan was an extremely rocky tenure for General McMaster, and when he was named National Security Advisor, I was pretty shocked given what his you know, last substantive command was in Afghanistan and how badly it, it turned out. He was sent to be the commander of an anti-corruption task force in Kabul, and he embraced that, like the hard-charging general that, you know, former tank commander that he is, and basically was rampaging around town trying to throw people in jail, including members of the Afghan government, and demanding results that many people thought were impossible to get and, and ultimately were counterproductive. At the same time, berating uh, a lot of his staff, and I interviewed many, many people who worked for him because it was key. What was his nickname? Well, McMaster Disaster was one of his nicknames by his subordinates. Even the people who were critical of him are often respect his intelligence and his brilliance and his stamina, but he alienated and, and made it very difficult for a lot of people to work with him and I think strained the relations with the Afghan government more than they maybe might have been. We really have time just for one more question, and it's one that's always perplexed me. And I know why we went into Afghanistan to take care of al-Qaeda, find Osama bin Laden. Is the Taliban our enemy? Well, if you judge enemy by, you know, they have a lot of uh, American soldiers' blood on their hands over the past 15 years. Are they an international terrorist threat? But I, if we weren't there, 
yeah, that they bear right. enemy. I, I, don't I mean, think if we weren't at a time involved in, I think, nation building. Yeah. I think they would likely be amenable to ISIS. They would likely be amenable to other extremist groups, but they're very internally focused and their goal is to control the politics of Afghanistan. And I think they have no interest in international terrorism from what we've seen up till now. We've been talking with Josh Bartlow. Josh is now in Mexico City as the Washington Post bureau chief, but was bureau chief in Kabul and has written a really fascinating book if you truly want to understand our history in Afghanistan. It's in paperback now, A Kingdom of Their Own, The Family Karzai in the Afghan Disaster. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.